Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 252 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the amazing life of Joshua Abraham Norton. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So Joshua Abraham Norton was a titan among men, and he led a roller coaster of a life. Born in humble circumstances in the early 1800s, he rose to become a wealthy and powerful businessman only to lose his fortune and return to humble circumstances. But then he went into politics and rocketed to the highest office. He reigned for many years. He was beloved by his subjects, and there are new efforts to honor him today. Who was Joshua Abraham Norton? What happened in his amazing life, and why is he still so beloved even today? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, let's start our story today at the beginning. Who was Joshua Abraham Norton, and when was he born? Norton was one of the most famous figures of the 19th century. In fact, he was internationally famous. But as you said in the introduction, he was born in very humble circumstances. Specifically, he was born in the English county of Kent, in the town of Deptford, which is now part of London. His parents were John and Sarah Norton, and they happened to be Jewish, which meant that they faced social stigmatization due to anti-Semitism, which was common at the time. Joshua was their second child. He had an older brother named Lewis, and the exact time of Joshua's birth is the subject of some debate, because we don't always have good records from the time. But based on multiple lines of evidence, it appears that he was born on February 4th, 1818 the month that he turned two years old in February of, 20, of 1820, his parents sailed from London to South Africa to build a better life for their family. And this was something that a lot of people were doing. In 1820, many British people were immigrating to South Africa, and today they're known as the 1820 settlers. The voyage took some time, and Joshua's younger brother, Philip, was actually born at sea. What did his parents do to build their new life in South Africa? Once in Cape Town, South Africa, Joshua's Joshua's father set up a ship chandlery, meaning a business that sold supplies for ships, like cloth for sails, ropes, mops, tools, tar, and other needful things. And the business was a success. Over the next 10 years, nine more siblings were born, bringing the family total to 12 children. Joshua also spent time living in Algoa Bay, which is located near Cape Town, down at the bottom point of Africa. Unfortunately, around 1840, Joshua's father's business began to decline, and Joshua also struck out on his own. Yes, before November of 1845, he had left Cape Town, and this is a bit of a dark period in his life that we don't have a lot of information about. However, in February 1846, when Joshua would have been 28 years old, he was in Liverpool in northern England, and he intended to immigrate to America. 
So in Liverpool, he boarded a ship named the Sunbeam, which took him to Boston, Massachusetts, your hometown. Here, we enter another dark period of his life that we don't know a whole lot about. It lasted for three and a half years, and apparently Joshua didn't spend all of that time in America. There is evidence that he also went back to South Africa, and that may have been to visit family and deal with legal affairs, because his mother had died in 1846 and his father died in 1848. His two brothers had also died, so Joshua, as the only surviving son, would have been the natural one to deal with the estate's legal matters in the wake of his father's death. But he then returned to America. Only this time, he would go to the West Coast rather than the East Coast. According to an interview he later gave to the San Francisco Chronicle, he arrived in San Francisco in November of 1849, when he was 31 years old. In the interview, he indicated that the ship had sailed uh, from the Cape of Good Hope, which is down at the point of South Africa near Cape Town, and then crossed the Atlantic to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, around Cape Horn at the bottom of South America, up the Pacific coast to Valparaiso, Chile, and then finally to San Francisco, California. Why did he go to San Francisco? We're not sure, but it may have been because of the discovery of gold at Sutter's Mill in Northern California in 1848. That led to the California gold rush, with many new settlers coming to California, especially in 1849, leading to them being called the 49ers. And I also hear tell that's the name of a sports ball team these days. However, Joshua was not planning to pan for gold. Instead, he was planning on starting a business and perhaps to make money off all the new economic activity that the gold rush was causing. Exactly how much starter money he had with him when he arrived isn't clear, but according to his obituary in the Daily Alta California, it was $40,000, which would be worth $1.5 million today after all the inflation the government has caused. Some have claimed that he received the $40,000 as an inheritance from his father, but this is almost certainly incorrect. Yes, uh, because his father's business had fallen on hard times and he died almost penniless, so he wasn't in a position to give his son a substantial inheritance. However, it's possible that Joshua had made the money from his own previous business efforts, and he clearly had some money because he immediately started advertising a business in San Francisco, and the newspapers were carrying uh, advertisements for it by June of 1850. We also have our first photograph of Joshua at this time. Getting your photograph taken was a very new thing because commercial photography itself was new, but in 1851, Joshua sat to have his portrait taken. We'll include this image in the video version of the podcast, which you can watch at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. We'll also have a link to it in the show notes. Joshua would have been 33 years old at the time of the photo, and you can see that he apparently had premature male pattern baldness, though he does have the mutton chops that were stylish at the time. And he does look like a well-to-do 1851 businessman. What sort of business did he start? It was a real estate and import business called Joshua Norton and & Company, and it was quite successful. 
according to a website devoted to his life and legacy. Joshua owned businesses at the three corners of Sansome and Jackson Streets, the rice mill, the cigar factory, the office building, also his two water lots at Rincon Point, and his storage ship, the Genesee. Although we're not sure about the exact figure, it has been claimed that within three years, so by 1853, he, he turned his initial $40,000 into a quarter of a million dollars, which would be worth $9 million today, though it's doubtful he made that much money. However, Joshua was certainly well off, according to his biographical website. Whatever the numbers, this much is known. In very short order, Joshua had made himself into a very prosperous and respected gentleman. He knew all the right people. He was a member of all the right clubs and committees. He was invited to all the right parties. He stayed in the best hotels. He had access. He had arrived. But, as we mentioned in the introduction, Joshua's life was a roller coaster ride, and we're now at the top of a lift hill on that roller coaster. So, Joshua is about to suffer a huge drop. What led to the drop happening? In late 1852, there was a severe famine going on across the Pacific in China. As a result, the Chinese imperial government banned the export of rice in order to keep the rice they had to feed their own population. That led to a rice shortage in other parts of the world, including California. And per the law of supply and demand, the price of rice skyrocketed. It had been four cents a pound, which would be a dollar fifty today, and the price increased nine hundred percent to thirty six cents a pound or thirteen dollars and fifty cents today. Imagine paying fourteen dollars for a single pound of rice in twenty twenty one a pound of long-grained, uncooked white rice in the U.S. was only 82 cents, not $14. So this was a massive amount of inflation on the price of rice. But Joshua learned of a business opportunity. There was a ship named the Glide coming back to San Francisco from Peru, and it was carrying 100 tons of rice. Joshua bought the entire shipment, at the rate of 12.5 cents per pound, or a total of $25,000, or almost a million dollars today. He could sell that for almost three times as much, given the current rate, so he stood to make $2 million on his $1 million investment. But then, disaster struck. According to his biographical website, He put $2,000 down with a contract for the rest, on 22 December 1852. Had things gone as planned, Joshua stood to make a very handsome profit indeed. But the next day, and then over the next two weeks, several more shiploads of rice arrived from Peru, all of superior quality to what Joshua had bought. The price of rice plummeted to three cents a pound. Suddenly, his good deal looked very, very bad. Joshua sought to void his contract on the grounds that he'd been misled. The matter was tied up in litigation for nearly two years at great personal cost. Finally, in October 1854, the California Supreme Court ruled against Joshua. Between the loss of his investment and all the legal fees, Joshua had suffered a severe blow. 
He tried to keep his business going as well as finding a new source of income. According to the biographical website, Although the fallout from this ruling all but ruined him financially, Joshua tried to regain his footing by running for San Francisco tax collector in May 1855, indicating that he'd become a U.S. citizen by this time. And while Joshua was forced to file for insolvency in August 1856, local newspapers continued to feature his business ads at least until mid-1857. In September of that year, Joshua served on a jury in trial of someone accused of stealing a bar of gold from Wells Fargo and Company. Joshua had hit a low point on his roller coaster ride, but now we come to a turning point that led to him finding his true path in life. He entered politics. Already in 1855, he had offered himself as a candidate for the, San for the office of San Francisco tax collector, though he didn't end up obtaining that office. And in 1858, the U.S. was getting ready for its midterm elections. These were in the middle of the term of President James Buchanan, whose election we talked about in episode 124 on death at the National Hotel. It was a very tense time, with a lot of talk of the South seceding from the North, and extreme tensions between members of the Democratic Party and the newly formed Republican Party. The Republicans were especially common in the anti-slavery North, while the Democrats were especially common in the pro-slavery South, and they would vote to secede from the Union when the first Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, was elected in 1860. But things were already extremely tense between them during the administration of President Buchanan. Having been born British and now having become an American citizen, Joshua didn't closely align with either the Democrats or the Republicans, and he had friends in both parties. In the United States, every member of the U.S. House of Representatives has to stand for election every two years, though the elections were held in different states at different times. So the midterms were spread between 1858 and 1859, with California holding its midterm election in September 1859. But for the coming election, Joshua made a momentous decision. In August, he published a notification in the San Francisco newspaper, The Daily Evening Bulletin, in which he stated, To the public. At the earnest solicitation of a number of my friends of all parties, I have been induced to offer myself as an independent candidate for the ensuing session of Congress. In the event of my election, I pledge myself to devote the whole of my attention and abilities to promote the interests and welfare of my constituency, irrespective of all parties. From my long residence in California, I am thoroughly acquainted with the wants of this, my adopted state and use every effort to promote immigration and the construction of the Pacific Railroad. Having every confidence in my ability to faithfully represent your interests, I confidently solicit the support of all parties. Joshua Norton. The Pacific Railroad was the first transcontinental railroad in North America. At the time, it didn't exist yet, but it was hotly talked about as a project that would help foster economic prosperity by connecting widely separated parts of America. It would be built in the next decade, in the 1860s, and it would stretch from Council Bluffs, Iowa, to Oakland, California, which is in the San Francisco area. 
and among the people who worked on it were indeed many immigrants, including many from China. So Joshua was running on a platform of promoting the welfare and interests of his constituents, regardless of what party they belonged to, promoting immigration to the United States, and promoting the construction of America's first transcontinental railroad. And how did he fare in the election? Unfortunately, not well. At the time, California was about evenly divided between settlers who belonged to the Democratic and Republican parties. In fact, things were getting so heated with so much talk of the United States breaking apart that as the September election approached, Joshua was becoming increasingly alarmed. And in July 1859, he published an urgent notice in the Daily Evening Bulletin. Manifesto from Joshua Norton Citizens of the Union, the Union is threatened with dissolution. Dissensions exist between the North and South. Measures affecting the general welfare cannot be got through Congress. Confidence ceases to exist with foreigners in the integrity and stability of the institutions of the country. Will you inaugurate a new state of things? Joshua Norton. That gives you a taste of how dire things were getting, and even though Joshua wanted to run as a unity candidate, who could appeal to voters from both parties, the situation was so polarized that an independent candidate didn't really have a chance. And in the end, both of California's two seats in Congress were won by Democrats. The California congressional election was held on September 7, 1859, and Joshua had lost. But just 10 days later, on September 17th, Joshua would rise to an even higher political office. In fact, an office so high that it would astonish the public and bring him to a position of international prominence. And before we find out what that office is, let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Sarah S., Patrick M., Dawn B., Jonathan S., and Zach B., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition, workout and prayer programs, and daily accountability check-ins. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Jimmy, what happened next in Joshua's story? It was at this moment that Joshua achieved true greatness. As William Shakespeare wrote in his play Twelfth Night, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Joshua now achieved greatness, and the roots of his greatness go all the way back to ancient Rome. In Latin, the word imperator means commander. This was originally a title that was awarded to commanding generals after particularly great victories on the battlefield, but it became the title of the head of state. And imperator is where we get the word emperor. Sometimes in history, 
people have proclaimed themselves emperor, particularly at times of great crisis. For example, after the disastrous aftermath of the French Revolution, Napoleon Bonaparte declared himself emperor of the French people in 1804, becoming Emperor Napoleon I. Well, America was now in a time of crisis, and Joshua was increasingly alarmed about the state of his adopted homeland. Although, as a citizen, he could run for Congress, he now realized that the powers of a congressman were unequal to the crisis facing the nation, and he could not run for president because Article 2, Section 1, Clause 5 of the U.S. Constitution requires that the president be a native-born citizen. And Joshua, having been born in England, meant that he was a naturalized citizen, not a native-born one, so he could not become president. To address the looming crisis in his adoptive homeland, Joshua Norton thus took a desperate step. Like Napoleon, he proclaimed himself emperor, becoming the first emperor of the United States, Emperor Norton I, and the public was immediately informed. Thus, the September 17th edition of the Daily Evening Bulletin dutifully published the following proclamation. At the peremptory request of a large majority of the citizens of these United States, I, Joshua Norton, formerly of Algoa Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and now for the last nine years and ten months past of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself Emperor of these United States, and in virtue of the authority thereby in me vested, do hereby order and direct the representatives of the different states of the Union to assemble in Musical Hall of this city on the first day of February next, then and there to make such alterations in the existing laws of the Union as may ameliorate the evils under which the country is laboring, and thereby cause confidence to exist both at home and abroad in our stability and integrity. Norton I, Emperor of the United States, 17th September, 1859. So, by proclaiming himself Emperor of the United States, Joshua had assumed an office far higher than the role of congressman which he had previously aspired to, and even higher than that of the president, who was at the time still James Buchanan. Why did Joshua choose to be called Norton I? Isn't that an unusual way for a monarch to refer to himself? Normally, emperors and other monarchs choose to be known by their first names, like Queen Elizabeth II of England, and the first to use a regnal name, typically does not have a number, like Queen Victoria of England. She's not known as Queen Victoria I because there haven't yet been any other Queen Victorias. Or Pope Francis, who would become known as Francis I only if there are future popes who choose the name Francis. But monarchs get to choose how people refer to them, and there have been exceptions to that rule like Pope John Paul I, who chose to be known as the first, even though he was the only Pope John Paul when he took office. Joshua displayed a similar personal flair by choosing to be styled by his last name and with a number. So he became known not as Emperor Joshua, but as Emperor Norton I. Transitions of governments like this, where one person suddenly seizes the reins of power and declares himself to be governor or king or emperor, can be traumatic or even violent. 
How did the people receive the news of their new emperor? Surprisingly well, the news of Emperor Norton's accession was extremely popular. Uh, after all, as he had said in his initial proclamation, Emperor Norton had only taken on his new role, quote, at the peremptory request of a large majority of the citizens of the United States, close quote. So this was a popular move. There were no attempts made to overthrow Emperor Norton, no palace coups, no attempts to arrest him or remove him from office. Instead, Americans seemed very interested in and appreciative of their new emperor, and they were fascinated by the new decrees that he issued. Sometimes the newspapers would refer to a decree as an ukase, which is a Russian word meaning edict. The Russian czars were known for issuing ukases, and in 1859, the Russian czar was Emperor Alexander III. Unlike other Russian emperors, Alexander kept his country out of any major wars, and so he was known as Alexander the Peacemaker. It was thus natural for the newspapers to compare the peace-minded American Emperor Norton I to the peace-minded Russian Emperor Tsar Alexander III. Emperor Norton was very concerned about the deteriorating condition of the United States. What did he do to address the situation? He didn't waste much time. After assuming office on September 17, 1859, he issued another decree less than a month later on October 12th and it indicated that he was taking dramatic action to help his adopted homeland. It ran under the headline, Another ukase from Tsar Norton. Congress abolished. Take notice, the world. There was then an introductory comment from the newspaper's editors, which said, His Imperial Majesty Norton I has issued the following edict, which he desires the bulletin to spread before the world. Letter rip. Then followed the text of the edict itself, in which the emperor stated, It is represented to us that the universal suffrage, that is, voting rights, as now existing throughout the Union, is abused, that fraud and corruption prevent a fair and proper expression of the public voice, that open violation of the laws are constantly occurring, caused by mobs, parties, factions, and undue influence of political sects, that the citizen has not the protection of person and property which he is entitled to by paying his pro rata of the expense of government, that is, his proportional share in taxes, in consequence of which we do hereby abolish Congress, and it is therefore abolished, and we order and desire the representatives of all parties interested to appear at the musical hall of this city on the 1st of February next, and then and there take the most effective steps to remedy the evil complained of. Norton I, Emperor of the United States of America. So the emperor was concerned that people's voting rights were being violated, that fraud and corruption, meaning bribery of public officials, were stopping people from having their proper voice in public affairs, that the laws were being openly violated due to political intimidation by mobs and the influence of political factions, and that the citizens were not receiving the protection of their persons and property that they were entitled to as a result of their paying taxes. Since the U.S. Congress was not stopping these evils, it was not doing its job, so the emperor used his authority to abolish Congress. And to take the most effective steps to deal with the crisis, he ordered representatives of all interested parties 
to gather in San Francisco on February 1, 1860, to determine what needed to be done. When did the emperor issue his next decree? It was less than two weeks later, on October 24th, and it concerned problems with the California Supreme Court. The headline read, The Supreme Court in Peril. And the introductory comment from the newspaper's editor said, The Emperor, Norton I, has had his attention directed to another evil that afflicts this people. By the following decree, he seeks to set things to rights. Vive l'Empereur! So you can hear how enthusiastically Emperor Norton's reign had been embraced by the public. The newspaper editor had no fear, and he openly cheers him using the French expression, Vive l'Empereur! or Long Live the Emperor. The decree that uh, then followed from Emperor Norton said, Citizens of California, whereas complaints are made that the Supreme Court of this state have, in several instances, reverted their own decisions, thereby making the power of the court itself of no avail, if you acknowledge the empire, then appeal to the emperor in all such inconsistencies. Norton I, Emperor of the United States of America, San Francisco, October 24th, 1859. So the emperor was concerned by the fact that the California Supreme Court was behaving inconsistently, and he was willing to intervene on behalf of citizens of California who were subjects of the American empire and were being harmed by the reversals of the California Supreme Court. While that situation was playing out, something else was going on. Emperor Norton had issued his first proclamation on Wednesday, October 12th, 1859, but just a few days later, from Sunday, October 16th to Tuesday, October 18th, a very dramatic event occurred elsewhere in the country. What happened? Abolitionist John Brown led an unsuccessful slave rebellion at Harper's Ferry in Virginia. We talked about John Brown in episode 211 on Harriet Tubman. Even though she wasn't present at Harper's Ferry, Brown referred to her as General Tubman and he also was referred to as a general in the uprising. However, it didn't succeed. Brown was captured, and he was executed on December 2, 1859, having been convicted of conspiracy to produce insurrection, treason against the Commonwealth of Virginia, and murder. What did Norton think of all this? The emperor did not approve. After word reached San Francisco of the execution, Norton published a new decree that stated, Headquarters, Musical Hall, San Francisco, California, December 28, 1859. Disapproving of the act of Governor Wise of Virginia in hanging General Brown at Charlestown, Virginia on 2nd December, and considering that the said Brown was insane and that he ought to have been sent to the insane asylum for capturing the state of Virginia with 17 men, now know all men that I do hereby discharge him. Henry A. Wise from said office and appoint John C. Breckinridge of Kentucky to said office of governor of our province of Virginia, Norton I, Emperor of the United States of North America. The emperor had been trying to keep the United States from dissolving, and so he took a middle position between those who would have wanted to see John Brown executed and those who have wanted to see him freed. He thus stated that Brown should have been confined to an insane asylum instead of being executed. He also expressed his displeasure by discharging Henry Wise from his office as the governor of Virginia, and he appointed John Breckinridge of Kentucky, who was 
currently the Vice President of the United States, to that office instead. Back in October, the emperor had declared the U.S. Congress to be abolished because it wasn't protecting people's rights. How did Congress respond to their being abolished? They had the unmitigated effrontery of ignoring the order and carrying on as if Emperor Norton had never issued it. This defiance of the imperial authority was clearly something that the emperor could not ignore. And so, in January 1860, the emperor issued a new decree which said, Proclamation. Whereas a body of men calling themselves the National Congress are now in session in Washington City in violation of our imperial edict of the 12th of October last, declaring the said Congress abolished, whereas it is necessary for the repose of our empire that the said decree should be strictly complied with, now therefore we do hereby order and direct Major General Winfield Scott, the commander-in-chief of our armies, immediately upon receipt of this, our decree, to proceed with a suitable force and clear the halls of Congress. Norton I, Emperor of the United States of America, dated from headquarters, San Francisco, California, January 4th, 1860. Unfortunately, Winfield Scott, the commanding general of the U.S. Army, also preferred to ignore the emperor's decree. And so there was a general attitude of insubordination on the East Coast. What about on the West Coast? The public were very enthusiastic about their new emperor, but the elected officials, perhaps feeling threatened by him even on the West Coast, were also sluggish in responding. One consequence of this was that Emperor Norton was having difficulty getting Milton Latham, the sixth governor of California, to properly install him in office. As a result, later that week, he issued a proclamation that stated, Whereas by proclamation of the 17th day of September last, we duly informed all parties of our election as Emperor of the United States of America by the national will, and whereas Governor Latham has so far failed to fulfill his duty in properly installing us into office, by which mean the tranquility, interest, and honor of our empire are neglected, now, therefore, we do hereby order and direct that the empire shall be forthwith proclaimed by the proper legally constituted authorities, or we shall resign and demand the tribute due to us. In the vernacular, Nuff said, Norton I, Emperor of the United States of North America, San Francisco, California, January 13th, 1860. I like how Emperor Norton used the vernacular and wrote, Nuff said, meaning enough said. I always thought that Nuff said was a 20th century expression and didn't know it went back to the 19th century. Did Governor Latham then properly install the emperor in office? Unfortunately, no. He ducked out on this responsibility by a really strange coincidence. Milton Latham was governor of California for the shortest period in history. His tenure lasted only five days between January 9th and January 14th. So he ducked out of office the day after Emperor Norton's decree. The official reason he left office was to accept an appointment to the U.S. Senate, but you can't help wondering if the reason he was so eager to join the U.S. Senate in Washington was that he was just yet another establishment politician who didn't want to acknowledge Emperor Norton. It was at this point that an event happened that thrust the emperor onto the world stage. 
What was it that happened? Between 1858 and 1861, there was a civil war in our neighboring country of Mexico. It's known as the Reform War or the Three Years War. But in January of 1860, the situation was really dire. Emperor Norton showed his urgent concern for our Mexican brethren and extended his mantle of care over them as well, and he issued a proclamation stating, Whereas it is an undoubted truth that Mexico is entirely unfit to manage her own affairs, the country being in a constant state of internal distraction, anarchy, and civil war, and whereas His Imperial Majesty Napoleon III of France is throwing his protecting arm around unfortunate Italy, we consider it our duty to shield and protect bleeding Mexico. Now, therefore, we do hereby order and direct that a convention of the nation shall assemble in the Hall of the Montezumas on the 5th day of July next, then and there to adopt such measures as will effectively protect her from future internal dissensions and give security for her future stability and protection to the great foreign interest. And we also do hereby order and direct 10,000 troops of our army to assemble in the said city of Mexico, that is Mexico City, on the said 5th day of July next, to enforce a proper and firm government adapted to the wants of the nation to be composed of the proper men for such an object. Norton I, Emperor of the United States of North America, dated from the headquarters, San Francisco, California, January 17, 1860. But things weren't going so well for Emperor Norton in the United States, and unfortunately he wasn't able to carry out these plans. Facing the recalcitrance of establishment politicians, the emperor had to take sterner measures. The U.S. had been founded as a republic, but with the politicians refusing to heed his orders, Emperor Norton was forced in July of 1860 to dissolve the republic in favor of a monarchy. Whereas it is necessary for our peace, prosperity, and happiness as also to the national advancement of the people of the United States, that they should dissolve the Republican form of government and establish in its stead an absolute monarchy. Now, therefore, we, Norton I, by the grace of God, Emperor of the 33 states and the multitude of territories of the United States of America, do hereby dissolve the Republic of the United States, and it is hereby dissolved. And all laws made from and after this date, either by the National Congress or any state legislature, shall be null and of no effect. All governors and all other persons in authority shall maintain order by enforcing the heretofore existing laws and regulations until the necessary alterations can be effected. Given under our hand and seal at headquarters, San Francisco, this 26th day of July, 1860, Norton I. So America was no longer a republic and was now a monarchy. Every government needs money to carry out its business. Did Emperor Norton just continue using the regular U.S. currency that had already been produced, or did he do something different? He produced his own money in the form of scrip, or promissory notes. The notes ranged in value from 50 cents to $10. 50 cents in 1860 would be worth $18 today, after all the inflation the government's caused. And $10 would be worth $360 now. So these notes were quite substantial in value. And as promissory notes, they were payable at 7% interest in 1880, 20 years later. 
every currency needs to be accepted by the population that's going to use it. Did people accept Emperor Norton's new currency? Oh, yes. People would purchase uh, the notes from the emperor. Uh, he himself would use them, for example, at restaurants to pay for his meals. And according to the Emperor Norton Trust website, they were routinely honored in San Francisco. Today, his notes are collector's items that can fetch $10,000 a piece at auction, so they are still valuable even today. In fact, way more valuable than when the emperor issued them. In the 19th century, American presidents tended to wear fashionable business suits of the day, sometimes with long tails and top hats. But emperors have traditionally worn more elaborate clothing. What did Emperor Norton wear? He was known for wearing a blue military uniform. It had been given to him in tribute by U.S. Army officers working at the Presidio of San Francisco, which was a fort built in 1776 by New Spain and that the city grew up around. The uniform had gold epaulets on the shoulders, and Emperor Norton often carried a walking stick, which was also common at the time, or sometimes he carried an umbrella. For his headwear, which was almost mandatory for men at the time, he often wore a military cap, but he sometimes wore a beaver hat. Uh, beaver hats were extremely popular in the 1800s. They were made by taking beaver fur and pressing it together to make a felt cloth, and the felt would then be used to make the hat. So this was quite stylish and up-to-date of him. And in keeping with his imperial status, he often wore an ostrich or peacock feather in his hat. Sometimes he also added a rosette to the hat that he wore as well. What did the emperor do in his personal time? Surely he didn't spend every bit of time attending to matters of state. No, the emperor enjoyed being out among his people, and he would dine out at restaurants in San Francisco, often using his own money to pay for his meals. He also showed solidarity with the less fortunate of the city, and he would eat at humble, free lunch counters. In the evenings, he would sometimes attend political meetings, but he also went to plays and musical performances. Today, politicians often have trouble getting their message out. Things are so polarized that politicians from rival parties will even make up fake news and lie or deliberately distort what their opponents have said. Did Emperor Norton have to face that kind of opposition? Yeah, he did. Uh, much to the annoyance of some San Franciscans, the name of the city had been subject to linguistic shift and the colloquial slang process, and some people began referring to San Francisco as Frisco. Allegedly, the imperial mind was displeased by this development, and Emperor Norton is said to have issued a decree in which he stated, Whoever, after due and proper warning, shall be heard to utter the abominable word Frisco, which has no linguistic or other warrant, shall be deemed guilty of a high misdemeanor, and shall pay into the imperial treasury, as penalty, the sum of $25. And $25 back then was a very hefty sum. Today, it would be worth almost $570. But it appears that Emperor Norton actually never issued this decree. It was a hoax that was made up in his name, and it was far from the only hoax like this. The emperor's subjects hung on his every word and wanted to hear frequently from their beloved emperor, and so, the media being what it is, the San Francisco papers began printing false proclamations from the emperor. 
Uh, perhaps some were planted even by his opponents who wanted to undermine him and make him look foolish, while others simply printed such things to sell papers and feed the public appetite for imperial proclamations. But either way, this fake news was a problem. What did the emperor do to deal with the situation? He decided to restrict the channels through which he would issue his decrees. In January of 1871, he selected a single newspaper that he could trust and appointed it his imperial organ. So, henceforth, his authentic proclamations would be coming from this source. The newspaper he selected was known as the Pacific Appeal. An interesting fact about the Pacific Appeal is that it was owned and operated by African Americans, and by doing business exclusively with an African American newspaper, it was a rather daring thing to do at the time, especially for a man of such an exalted rank. But this shows how the emperor cared for all of his subjects, regardless of who they were. It didn't matter to the emperor if you were black, white, or any other color, as we'll see. Did shifting his decrees to the Pacific Appeal help fight his fake news problem? It certainly helped, and historians today have looked at the Pacific Appeal decrees and concluded that they are indeed authentic. But, like politicians today, Emperor Norton had to deal with rumors about his person as well. Uh, for example, there was a rumor that he was the son of the French emperor Napoleon III. The claim was that his account of coming from South Africa was actually misdirection to prevent him from being persecuted as the son of the French emperor. Another rumor was that despite the fact he ate at free lunch counters in solidarity with the poor, he was actually fantastically wealthy and only refrained from spending money because he was a miser. But one of the most interesting rumors dealt with his relationship with two other San Francisco celebrities of the time who were named Bummer and Lazarus. Okay, I'm not sure many listeners will know about Bummer and Lazarus. Who were they? Well, to explain who they were, we need to take a brief detour and talk about a problem with cities in America in the 1800s. They were overrun with wild dogs. Uh, for example, in the 1840s in Los Angeles, there were more than twice as many dogs in the city as people, more than two dogs for every one person. And these dogs were not pets. They were wild, and they were all over the place, going into shops and businesses, getting into fights with each other, including fights over food, which was scarce, and generally causing problems. To deal with the dog overpopulation problem, they were frequently caught by the dog catcher or otherwise poisoned by locals. But there was another overpopulation problem in the cities, which was rats. The cities were also overrun with rats. And while dogs who were good at catching and eliminating the rats could be allowed to live. At this point, Bummer enters our story. He was a black and white dog who was either a Newfoundland or a mix of a Newfoundland, Newfoundland with something else. In 1860, he started hanging around Frederick Martin's saloon in San Francisco, and Bummer was a good ratter, so he was allowed to live. Bummer also was a fighter, and in 1861, 
he came to the defense of another dog that was being attacked by a larger opponent. The dog Bummer rescued was severely wounded and was not expected to live, but Bummer would bring food to the injured dog, and he huddled next to him at night to keep him warm, and eventually the dog recovered, which earned him the name Lazarus, after the man Jesus resurrects in John 11. It turned out that Lazarus was an even better ratter than Bummer was. The two of them once managed to catch 85 rats in just 20 minutes, and they became famous. Soon, the newspapers like The Californian, The Daily Alta California, The Daily Morning Call, and The Daily Evening Bulletin were running regular stories describing the two dogs' adventures together. These adventures were based on what the two dogs were actually doing in the area around Martin's saloon, but the writers anthropomorphized the dogs to add human interest to the story. It was kind of like a soap opera about life living on the street starring two anthropomorphized dogs, and the public loved Bummer and Lazarus. In 1862, a new dog catcher got hold of Lazarus, and a mob of angry citizens demanded his release. In response to the crowd's demands, the city supervisors released Lazarus and declared that he and Bummer were now exempt from the city's ordinance against stray dogs, and so they had the free run of the city. And perhaps in thanks for this gesture, Bummer and Lazarus reportedly stopped a runaway horse a week later, this being the age before automobiles. So what's Emperor Norton's connection to the story of Bummer and Lazarus? At this time, there was a newspaper cartoonist living in San Francisco named Edward Jump, and he featured the emperor and the two dogs in a number of his cartoons. Perhaps the most famous was a cartoon called The Three Bummers, which featured the Emperor Norton standing and lunching at a table, with Bummer and Lazarus standing nearby, waiting to be given scraps. Perhaps as a result of the three being featured in multiple cartoons by Edward Jump, a rumor started that Emperor Norton owned the two dogs, though that appears to have been simply untrue. It is, however, reported that the Emperor spent time with the two dogs and would share his meals with them. What ended up happening to Bummer and Lazarus? Well, the life of a dog on the street is a hard one, and they didn't survive very long. In 1863, Lazarus died, allegedly after having been poisoned with rat bane, meaning rat poison. The city was outraged, and a $50 award, or $1,200 today, was offered for the capture of the man who did it. Edward Jump did another cartoon displaying an elaborate funeral for Lazarus, with many famous San Franciscans in attendance and Emperor Norton dressed as the Pope presiding over the service. And the Daily Evening Bulletin published a long obituary for the dog entitled Lament for Lazarus, which recounted his and Bummer's adventures in the city. Bummer himself passed on in 1865 after being kicked by a drunk named Henry Rippey. To keep the city from erupting in violence, the authorities immediately took Rippy into custody. Rippy's cellmate was a popcorn vendor named David Popley. By coincidence, 
This was also back in the day when men would push carts down the street and sell popcorn from them. And Popley certainly had civic spirit because when he learned what Rippy had done, he took justice into his own hands and popped him in the smeller, meaning he socked him in the nose. Also, the famed literary author Mark Twain wrote a tribute to Bummer in which he said, The old vagrant Bummer is really dead at last, and although he was always more respected than his obsequious vassal, the dog Lazarus, his exit has not made half as much stir in the newspaper world as signalized the departure of the latter. I think it is because he died a natural death, died with friends around him to smooth his pillow and wipe the death damps from his brow and receive his last words of love and resignation because he died full of years and honor and disease and fleas. And so Bummer and Lazarus passed on to their reward, as we discussed in episode 203 on Animal Afterlife. And by the way, we'll be discussing Mark Twain himself and his psychic abilities in a future episode. We've spent some time learning about Emperor Norton as a man, but now let's turn back to his official activities as emperor. What did he do on the international scene? We mentioned that he'd expressed his concern regarding our sister nation of Mexico and its troubles during the Reform War of 1858 to 1861. In 1862, things got worse when the French emperor, Napoleon III, invaded Mexico. This was all the more dramatic for the emperor since he was rumored to be the son of Napoleon III, although he wasn't. Napoleon then installed an Austrian of the Habsburg family as his puppet ruler in Mexico. This man became known as Maximilian I, the Emperor of Mexico, and in response to a suggestion from the public, Emperor Norton again expressed his concern for the people of Mexico by adding to his titles. Henceforth, he would not simply be known as Emperor of the United States, but also Protector of Mexico. He thus began signing his decrees, Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico, as a sign of his fatherly care for both peoples. Did the emperor do other things on the international scene? He's reportedly sent multiple letters to Queen Victoria of England, suggesting that the two marry in order to strengthen ties between the United States and England. Queen Victoria was recently widowed. Her husband, Prince Albert, having passed away in 1861, so she was free to marry. But after Albert's death, she went into mourning and seclusion and never remarried, so she ended up not accepting Emperor Norton's offer. You just mentioned Prince Albert, and if you watch old TV shows from the mid-20th century, you'll see a common prank phone call being formed, performed. There was a popular brand of pipe tobacco known as Prince Albert, and in the prank, a person will call a grocery store and ask if they have Prince Albert in a can, meaning a can of pipe tobacco rather than a pouch. The store clerk will then say something like, yes, we do have Prince Albert in a can, at which point the prankster will say, then let him out. Is Queen Victoria's husband the man who the pipe tobacco is named after? Actually, no, it's named after Victoria and Albert's eldest son, who was also named Prince Albert. After his mother's death in 1901, he took the throne under the name Edward VII. So the pipe tobacco is named after Queen Victoria's son rather than husband. If Emperor Norton failed to make headway with relations with England, 
Did he have any other successes? He did. In the 1860s, the Hawaiian Islands were not part of the United States. They were an independent kingdom, and the king was Kamehameha V. There's a fascinating story about how Hawaii became part of the United States, and there's a good bit of skullduggery and intimidation in the story, with the U.S. government acting in ways it should not have. So we'll definitely be talking about Hawaii, how Hawaii became part of the U.S. in a future episode, but suffice it to say that relations between the Kingdom of Hawaii and the United States were not always cordial. Well, Emperor Norton was a man of international goodwill, and he carried on a correspondence with King Kamehameha, which bore fruit. King Kamehameha's reign ended in 1872, and towards the end of his reign, he refused to acknowledge the U.S. government in Washington and treated Emperor Norton as the sole legitimate ruler of the nation. So that was a diplomatic win for the emperor. The emperor also reportedly called for the founding of a League of Nations to help stop wars, and eventually, after World War I, a League of Nations was founded, followed by the United Nations after World War II. Emperor Norton had been born to Jewish parents. What were his own views, and what were his religious policies like? Well, I haven't been able to determine the emperor's personal religious views as an adult. I, I don't know if he still identified as Jewish or as something else. But he reportedly wanted religious toleration and did not want to see conflict between the different belief systems. And he certainly had an ecumenical outlook. In his 1923 pamphlet, Norton I, Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico, historian Robert Cowan writes, The imperialistic duties were manifold, comprehending grave affairs both national and international. The Civil War gave him deep concern. On July 12, 1860, he declared the Union dissolved. Early in the war, he declared a blockade, and in 1862, he issued a mandate to the Protestant and Catholic churches to publicly ordain him as emperor, that he might more efficiently bring order out of the chaos into which the country had been plunged by the violent conflict and fierce dissensions of its rebellious people. So he reached out to both Protestant and Catholic churches for support to help the nation. I found a decree in which he showed a similar ecumenical outlook in 1870, after the war, in which he was chastising local newspapers for publishing documents forged under his name. He wrote, Now therefore we, Norton I, Dei Gracia, by the grace of God, Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico, do hereby decree that all papers wherein such forged article was published be fined 150 each, the same to be paid to the managers of the Catholic and Protestant orphan asylums of this city. So as punishment for printing a false article in his name, the emperor decreed that each offending newspaper pay $150 or $3,400 today to the managers of the Catholic and Protestant Homes for Orphans in San Francisco. Also, in 1875, the emperor publicly rebuked a religious minister who he regarded as preaching hatred. In the Pacific Appeal, he published a proclamation that stated, Take three little ropes, red, white, and blue, and they will hang Catholic, Protestant, or Jew. But unravel the ropes and weave them, and you have the colors which make a beautiful flag, one that blesses and protects all who live under it. This is an allegory the emperor commends to Reverend Mr. Hammond, 
as a subject to preach to children about, instead of slandering God and sowing the seeds of bigotry and imbecility in the minds of his little subjects. I also found a decree from the Pacific Appeal, in which he said that, The emperor wants but one church in all his dominions. However, I'm not sure what this means, because he didn't elaborate on it. Perhaps it was a kind of long-term ecumenical goal, because his clear, concrete decrees were about churches getting along together in the here and now, rather than favoring one rather than another or forcing them into some kind of unwilling union. Though I did find one group that he did not seem to favor, which was the spiritualist church. In episode 137 on mediums, we talked about the Fox sisters. They started the spiritualist movement in 1848, and it became a huge international phenomenon with countless mediums holding seances to talk to spirits, and it led to the founding of the spiritualist church. We'll be talking more about the Fox sisters and spiritualism in the future, but for now, I'd note that Emperor Norton did not seem to favor spiritualism which he regarded as simply crazy, or at least many people in many circles regarded it as simply crazy. As a result, in 1860, the emperor issued a decree that said, Whereas there are undoubtedly lying and deceitful spirits as well as truthful ones, and whereas, through the instrumentality of those who are enlightening others on this matter, the inmates of our insane asylums throughout our several provinces in our empire have become greatly increased in number. Now, therefore, to prevent, so far as possible, the increase of insanity throughout our dominions, we do hereby order and direct that all preachers of spiritualism, without distinction, shall be sent to our insane asylums and there kept on short allowance until their minds can cool down from heavenly to earthly subjects. Norton I, Emperor of the United States of America. So, at least at this time, he suggested that spiritualist preachers be kept in confinement to allow their minds to cool down and become sensible, which is not the most ecumenical sentiment, though his decrees became quite ecumenical later on. With the emperor running his own government on the West Coast and the rebel Washington-based government on the East Coast, did the emperor ever face personal opposition? I can imagine his political opponents trying to arrest him or have him declared insane. He did face exactly this type of opposition. In 1867, he was arrested by a man named Armand Barbier. Barbier was part of a private security firm uh, paid for by San Francisco businessmen and residents. The members of this firm were called policemen, but they were really just security guards. And Barbier took the emperor into custody, quote, for involuntary treatment of a mental disorder. Close quote. Psychiatric confinement, of course, being a common way of dealing with political opponents. It was frequently used that way, for example, in the 20th century in the Soviet Union and elsewhere in the communist world. If someone was politically troublesome for you, just claim that they're insane and lock them up. What was the public reaction when the emperor was arrested? They were horrified and recognized the arrest for the injustice that it was. The citizens of San Francisco were outraged that their beloved emperor had been taken into custody, and newspapers wrote scathing editorials. For example, the Daily Alta California defended the emperor by saying, Arrest of the emperor. 
Special Officer Barbier yesterday arrested the Emperor Norton I and took him to the calaboose to be examined by the Commissioner of Lunacy. Norton was in his day a respectable merchant, and since he has worn the Imperial Purple, he has shed no blood, robbed nobody, and despoiled the country of no one, which is more than can be said of any of his fellows in that line. So the newspapers were defending him not only as the emperor, but as a better emperor than any of the others then reigning, since he didn't harm anyone unlike the other emperors. In view of the public outcry, police chief Patrick Crowley ordered the emperor released. So just like Bummer and Lazarus, the emperor was released by popular demand. And the police chief also issued a formal apology on behalf of the police force. Emperor Norton, being a magnanimous man, issued an imperial pardon to Barbier, the man who arrested him, and thereafter, San Francisco police would salute the emperor whenever they saw him passing on the street. As emperor of the United States, Norton I was a threat to the established politicians, and for much of his career, it's as if the authorities simply wished to pretend that Emperor Norton didn't exist, so that they didn't have to deal with him and his authority. Did he ever obtain the official recognition of his status? He did in 1870 when a new census of the United States was taken. Uh, Emperor Norton does appear on the census, and if you look on the line where he's listed, you'll see that his name is given as Norton, Joshua. His age is given as 50, and his occupation is listed as emperor. Bearing in mind that the U.S. Census is produced by the U.S. government, this was official recognition of his status as emperor, although some scurrilous person did write the word insane in another column. Perhaps an agent of one of his political opponents did so. Emperor Norton also expressed his concern for the civic good of his home area, and in 1872, he issued a series of decrees mandating the building of a bridge between Telegraph Hill in San Francisco and Oakland Point via Goat Island in San Francisco Bay. He also advocated the building of a tunnel connecting them. But the city fathers were slow about enacting these decrees, and so in September of 1872, Norton issued a proclamation in the Pacific Appeal stating, Whereas we issued our decree ordering the citizens of San Francisco and Oakland to appropriate funds for the survey of a suspension bridge from Oakland Point via Goat Island, also for a tunnel, and to ascertain which is the best project, and whereas the said citizens have hitherto neglected to notice our said decree, and whereas we are determined our authority shall be fully respected, now therefore we do hereby command the arrest by the army of both the boards of city fathers, if they persist in neglecting our decrees. Given under our royal hand and seal at San Francisco, this 17th day of September, 1872, Norton I. And as we'll see, the bridge and tunnel are an important part of Emperor Norton's legacy. You also said that we see how the emperor cared about all his subjects, regardless of what color they were. One example was his beginning to publish his imperial proclamations exclusively in the African-American-owned Pacific Appeal. But you suggested there would be other examples. What were you talking about? The 19th century was a period of great immigration 
to the United States, and many immigrants had come to the West Coast from China, such as to help build the Transcontinental Railroad. Chinese immigration is why San Francisco has its famous Chinatown, and many cities on the West Coast have large Asian communities. I mean, here in San Francisco, here in San Diego, I can drive down the street and see various forms of Asian writing on buildings, also Arabic and other other languages. Um, but the 19th century also was a time of significant racism, and anti-Chinese crimes and riots broke out. For example, some of these happened further down the coast in Los Angeles, and Emperor Norton took note and threatened the Los Angeles authorities, stating, The authorities of Los Angeles are held responsible for the outrages perpetrated on the Chinese in that city recently if every person implicated is not properly punished. Norton I, dated San Francisco, January 5th, A.D. 1872. And in 1878, the emperor personally confronted an anti-Chinese rabble-rouser in San Francisco. The man's name was Dennis Kearney, and he led the Working Man's Party, or Working Men's Party of California, a labor organization with anti-Chinese views that published anti-Chinese literature urging that Chinese people be expelled from California. On April 28, 1878, Kearney was holding an anti-Chinese rally on a sandlot across from San Francisco City Hall, and such rallies often resulted in riots and violence. But the emperor showed up and told Kearney off to his face. The details of the following account aren't all accurate, but here's how the encounter was related in 1939 by author David Warren Ryder. One evening, Emperor Norton was out taking his customary after-supper stroll, accompanied by his two faithful dogs, Bummer and Lazarus, when at the corner of Kearney and California streets, he came upon a typical sandlot anti-Chinese meeting. At the moment the emperor arrived, the speaker was at the height of his passionate harangue, and the young hoodlums, who made up a large part of his audience, were cheering him on and voicing their own imprecations of the Chinese. The emperor took in the situation immediately and immediately went into action. Shouldering his way through the crowd up to the big packing case, which was serving as a rostrum, he held up his hand for silence. The speaker, whether momentarily nonplussed by such an unprecedented interruption, or because he thought that a bit of drollery might not go amiss with the audience, stopped his harangue and, announcing that, quote, we will now have a few words from His Imperial Majesty Norton I, Emperor of America, end quote, he invited the emperor to mount the packing case. There was a roar of laughter from the crowd as Emperor Norton, with some difficulty, got up on the big box, but the laughter was short-lived. The emperor, steadying himself with his heavy cane, closed his eyes and commenced reciting the Lord's Prayer. Even the hoodlums were silent, and when he asked the audience to repeat the prayer with him, some of them joined in. For a moment or two after the final amen, the emperor stood silent before a hushed audience. Then he made a little speech of his own, about the virtue of brotherly love and the necessity of men living amicably together. Meantime, the sandlot orator, sensing the changed temper of the crowd, had come down from his rostrum and slipped away. And when the emperor ended with the declaration that we are all God's children and requested the crowd to disperse, it did so quickly and without dissent. There were no windows broken in San Francisco's Chinatown that night. 
As I said, the details of this account, written 61 years later, aren't reliable. One reason is that the event took place in 1878, and Bummer and Lazarus died in 1863 and 1865, so they couldn't have been there, though other dogs could have. He apparently did not say the Lord's Prayer on this occasion, and other accounts indicate that the emperor was not successful in getting the crowd to disperse, but he did confront Kearney to his face at the Sandlot meeting, and that shows that the Emperor Norton cared for everyone, regardless of what color they were. The same is indicated by other decrees he issued. For example, he advocated the right of all people in the country to the public streetcars, and in 1871, he issued a decree in the Pacific Appeal that stated, Whereas we ordered the colored people some years back to be permitted to ride in the street railroad cars, but in order to prevent collision and future disturbance, we hereby command the arrest of all who violate that decree. And he advocated the right of the non-white children to attend public schools and have all the privileges of citizenship. In 1874, he decreed, Whereas the American nation, having acknowledged the citizenship of the colored people, their children are entitled to admission in the public schools, and all the privileges of citizenship. You must either take the citizenship away and exclude, or admit them and grant them their privileges. Norton I, Emperor of the United States of America and Protector of Mexico. So the emperor continued to advocate for the rights of all of his subjects. How did Emperor Norton die? He passed on to his reward on January 8, 1880, at the age of 61. The Emperor Norton Trust website reports, On the rainy evening of Thursday, 8 January 1880, the Emperor headed out to attend the regular monthly debate of the Hastings Society at the Academy of Natural Sciences. As he finished climbing the last block and reached the southeast corner of California and DuPont, now Grant Avenue, just across the street from the Academy, the Emperor collapsed and died. And the spot where he died was in front of Old St. Mary's Catholic Cathedral, which may be a providential sign, and it serves as an invitation for all of us to pray for the repose of his soul. Upon seeing him fall, a police officer summoned a carriage to take him to City Receiving Hospital, but he passed on before the carriage arrived. The Morning Call newspaper then reported, On the reeking pavement in the darkness of a moonless night under the dripping rain, and surrounded by a hastily gathered crowd of wandering strangers, Norton I, by the grace of God, Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico, departed this life. Other sovereigns have died with no more of kindly care. Other sovereigns have died as they have lived with all the pomp of earthly majesty. But death having touched them, Norton I rises up the exact peer of the haughtiest king or kaiser that ever wore a crown. Perhaps he will rise more than the peer of most of them. He had a better claim to kindly consideration than that his lot forbade to wade through slaughter to a throne and shut the gates of mercy on mankind. Two days later, the San Francisco Chronicle reported on his funeral under the headline Le Roy est mort, or The King is Dead, in French. There had been some behind-the-scenes discussion of his funeral uh, following his death, it was learned that despite the rumor that he was a wealthy miser who refused to spend money, he actually did not have financial means. He never exploited 
his role as emperor to become wealthy. But a San Francisco Businessmen's Association called the Pacific Club took up a collection, and they purchased for him a handsome rosewood casket. According to the Chronicle, 10,000 people came to pay their final respects to his body as it lay in state, and three horse-drawn carriages escorted the emperor's casket to his final repose. Did Emperor Norton go on to leave a lasting legacy? He did. In 1884, Mark Twain, super psychic, published The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and if you've ever read that novel, you'll know that there's a character in it known as The King. The King is based on Emperor Norton. Also, in 1892, Robert Louis Stevenson published The Wrecker, and Emperor Norton appears in that book. In keeping with the Emperor's wishes, San Francisco Bay was eventually bridged, and in 1939, a plaque commemorating the Emperor was erected by the Ancient and Honorable Order of E. Clampus Vitus, a comedy fraternal organization devoted to preserving the heritage of the American West. The plaque reads, Pause, traveler, and be grateful to Norton I, Emperor of the United States, Protector of Mexico, 1859-1880. to whose prophetic wisdom conceived and decreed the bridging of San Francisco Bay, August 18, 1869. On the plaque is an image of Emperor Norton, a bridge across the bay, and faithful Bummer and Lazarus mourning their former non-owner. Are people still interested in Emperor Norton today? Oh yes, articles and books continue to be written about him, and his gravesite is a place of pilgrimage for His Majesty's loyal subjects today. His tombstone reads, Norton I, Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico, Joshua A. Norton, 1819-1880. In San Francisco, there is a gentleman named Joseph Amster who continues his memory uh, in part by dressing up as him and by serving as a tour guide uh, for Emperor Norton's fantastic San Francisco time machine. And we'll have a link to its website, so you can take the Emperor Norton tour the next time you're in San Francisco. More seriously, however, devoted subjects of the Emperor continue to fight to gain him proper recognition for his decree that a bridge and tunnel be built across San Francisco Bay. In 2004, 2013, and also today, there have been efforts to name part or all of the San Francisco-Oakland Bridge in honor of Emperor Norton. The plan is to have the existing names left in place, but to add Emperor Norton Bridge as an additional honorary name. This effort is overseen by the Emperor Norton Trust, and we'll have a link to their campaign website where you can sign a petition and add your name to the growing chorus of those demanding that the first Emperor of the United States at last be given his proper recognition. One thing before we go, today is a fifth Friday, and normally we do weird questions episodes on fifth Fridays. Why are we doing one today? Because it's also a tradition that we do episodes on April 1st, and tomorrow is Saturday, April 1st. So this episode on Emperor Norton is officially our April 1st episode. Um, we normally have an episode released every Friday, and I didn't want to make people wait an extra day. And so I decided to release it a day early, and so people would have their regular Friday Mysterious World. Does that mean that people should just dismiss this as an April Fool's episode and that none of today's story is true? 
Oh, no. Um, For several years, we did April Fool's episodes in which everything I said was technically true, but highly misleading. That way, the episodes became exercises in critical thinking, but listeners started expecting highly misleading stories. Uh, I want to keep the listeners on their toes. I want to encourage critical thinking, and so I want them to listen closely and not make assumptions on April Fool's Day. So last year, in episode 200, we did Ghost Bride. And despite the fact it was a wild tale, the whole story was absolutely true. In deciding what to do this year's for April 1st, I didn't want people to figure I'd immediately go back to being misleading. So this year's story about Emperor Norton also is absolutely true. He really did exist. He really did do all the things we've discussed. And you really can add your voice to those demanding that our beloved emperor finally get the respect he deserves. I did. I signed the petition, and I invite you to do so as well. So today's story is absolutely true, and you'll need to stay on your toes and exercise critical thinking for future April Fool's episodes. Are we being misleading? Are we being straightforward? Use critical thinking and figure it out. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the viewers and listeners on Emperor Norton? We'll have a link to the Emperor Norton Trust website, also photographs of Emperor Norton, proclamations of Emperor Norton, Robert Cowan's pamphlet, Norton I, Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico, Wikipedia information on Emperor Norton and Bummer and Lazarus, also the uh, Emperor's Bridge proclamations, information on E. Clampus Vitus, Emperor Norton's Fantastic San Francisco Time Machine, and name it the Emperor Norton Bridge. So that's it for us from for this time. What are your theories about the amazing life of Emperor Norton? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpm.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they did on this episode. Um, They do a lot of great work, and you can see examples of what they do by going to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, I am trying to grow my channel. Uh, We're trying to get up to 40,000 subscribers. That's our current goal. I'd really appreciate it if you uh, subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification when I release a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or one of the other videos I release. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, today is a fifth Friday, so next Friday we'll be doing our usual weird question show, which we ordinarily would have done today. We'll be answering questions like, if you were a vampire, could you commit suicide to protect others? Does time travel interfere with God's plan? Could someone in a sufficiently distant part of space use a sufficiently large telescope to watch Jesus? Um, Is it okay to watch ghost hunting shows for entertainment? What would have to change in the Apocalyptic Left Behind series to be in line with Catholic teaching? And more. 
Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you can write reviews of podcasts to help us grow our community and reach even more listeners. You are the number one way we reach more folks. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 252. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, PlayStation Portable. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash PSP.